here. Uh, we love Second City Church. My wife, Tracy, and I have been uh, friends of, I, I guess in Tracy's case, about 20 years. In my case, about 17 or so years with Rollin and B. Uh, we're just truly gifted, truly a privilege always to be here. Um, you know, I come before you with all humility because I'm a, a Duke fan and a sea of UNC fans. Um, this, is a, this is a humbling morning uh, for all of us who, who wear the royal blue. Um, but truly great to be here with you. I'm so thankful. Um, I'm, I'm actually here with my, my daughter, Reese. She's in the back with the, with the children as well. But um, it's probably a, maybe our sixth or seventh visit over the past five-ish years, something like that. Um, and each time, the, the desire that's on my heart is really to ask, God, what are you saying? What are you saying to this people what do you wish to communicate, and how can we hear from you so that we, we don't want to be like um, the man who looks into the Word of God, sees something, goes away, and forgets all about it, right? We want to hear the Word of God, and we want it to transform us. We want our hearts to be forever changed. Um, so let's pray, and let's ask God to do that very thing, and we're just going to dive right in uh, to the Scriptures. Father in heaven, we worship you, we honor you, we praise you. Thank you for the incredible privilege of being your children. The Apostle John said, how, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Thank you for what that means. Thank you that we have an inheritance. Thank you that we have a purpose. Thank you that we have the Father's love. Thank you that we have the Father's protection. Thank you that we have the Father's provision. You have truly given us everything we need. Your divine power has given us all we need for life and godliness through a knowledge of the one who called us by glory and goodness. So now, God, I ask you as we open your word, as we read your scripture, I pray that you would forever transform us more into the image of Jesus Christ, your son. Amen. One of the great ironies of the Christian life that many authors have alluded to is the fact that you receive things by pursuing the exact opposite of those things. Jesus was full of statements that at face value seemed highly mysterious. Imagine being there when he said, whoever wants to save his life will lose it. The first time you heard that, you might have said, wait, wait, what? That doesn't, it doesn't compute with my, with my cognitive mind. And then he went on, but whoever, wants to, um, but whoever loses his life for me in the gospel will save it. Scripture is full of all of these statements where we apprehend and we understand if you pursue a goal, even a good goal for its own sake, then it will become an idol to you and eventually destroy you. But if you pursue God, you pursue his purpose, you ask him, God, what have you created me to do? What would you have me do? And you surrender to him. Then often those things come right along uh, with it. Jesus said, no one who leaves father, mother, sister, brother, mother, for me and the kingdom will fail to receive a hundred times as much. Same idea. I walk away from all these things that I value, that are good things, that I enjoy and appreciate. And then Jesus says, when you do that, you won't fail to receive a hundred times as much. I don't know how many of you have had a chance to read Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. If, if you haven't, I highly, highly recommend it. This is one thing Lewis says in mere Christianity. Give up yourself and you will find your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death 
death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber in your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will ever really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever really be raised to life. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find him, and with him, everything else thrown in. A critical understanding. This is fundamental Christianity. This is not asceticism, right? Jesus said, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. But Jesus also said, in the process of denying, in the process of denying and dying to yourself, you will find that God in his provision gives you everything he needs, everything you need. In some cases, the things that you were pursuing and you thought were so important, you realize were not that important. In other cases, you give him something to let it die, and it comes back resurrected. This is the story of Christendom ever since Abraham said, I'm willing to offer my only son Isaac, believing, reasoning somehow that God can raise him from the dead. Today I want to look at four specific areas for each of us where Jesus puts his finger on a place and says, keep back nothing. Hold back nothing of everything I've called you to do. We're just going to sit at the feet of Jesus. We're going to be in different passages, different words that he spoke to those he followed, who followed him and to those who were contemplating following him to see, Jesus, what would you have us do? What is your command for us? What is your command for me? And my prayer for every single person in this room is that the words of Jesus would be applied to your heart by the Holy Spirit and that you would hear what he's saying to you, that you would hear what he wants you to hear and be transformed, okay? So let's talk about, we're gonna talk about four things conveniently. They all start with the letter P, possessions, prayers, priorities, and purpose. Let's begin with possessions. We're gonna look at John chapter six. Uh, we, may, uh, we may have these great verses on the board. Um, so this is John six, five to 13. I'm just gonna read it. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and seeing a great multitude coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread that these may eat? But he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread are not sufficient for them that everyone may have a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two small fish, but what are they among so many? Then Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number about 5,000. And Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to the disciples, and the disciples to those sitting down, and likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. So when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the fragments that remain, so that nothing is lost. Therefore they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with the fragments of the five barley loaves, which were left over by those who had eaten. Now, it's interesting that the Apostle John says that Jesus asked this question of Philip. The reason Jesus asked this question of Philip putatively in the disciples' minds is because Philip was from Bethsaida, right near here. And so it would be the equivalent of me coming to someone who lives in Lincoln Park and saying, 
Where should we go to eat this afternoon, right? You know the restaurants. I don't know the restaurants. And so Jesus asked this, not that he was worried about where the food would come from, but he was asking the question like we normally would. You'd ask the the local person, the hometown guy, where should we go eat? Where should we get the food? Now, Jesus said this, of course, knowing what he was already going to do. Um, we, We talked about this yesterday in our discussion on prayer. When Jesus asks a question, he never asks a question because he's curious about the answer. He has all wisdom, all understanding. He knows everything. He asks the question because he wants to reveal what's in the hearts of people. He wants them to contemplate and understand. And so they took it as a natural question. They responded with a natural answer. In the words of Philip, we could spend more than six months wages and we wouldn't have enough for everyone to have just a tiny bite. Uh, Jesus already knew what he was going to do. Um, And it's interesting how when Jesus asked this question, um, Philip responded with a very human way of thinking. So often we all do. We add up the money in our bank, we look at the thing, and we say it can or cannot happen um, based on that, right? And it's good to live within a budget, um, but the, the point is that beyond what we can see and the natural things that we have or the natural resources that are at our disposal, God, through his Holy Spirit, is able to do so much more. He's able to provide far more. Um, I love sharing this story in Chicago because it concerns my brother who was a student here. Um, There was at his church a mission pledge offering. He was a grad student on quite a a very modest budget at the time, and he felt the Lord put on his heart to give, um, he, he had precisely counted out everything he needed for his budget. The Lord put on his heart to give an amount that would take more than that. And so he said, okay, I'm going to pledge. I'm, based on faith, I'm going to believe in you. I'm going to trust in you. Here's what I'm going to do, um, not knowing where it would come from. And so at the end of the first year, he was going to a reception. He thought it was just a, an end-of-year party with all the first-year economic students. And um, at the end of the reception, a professor stood up and said, now it's time to give the monetary prize for the best first-year macroeconomic student. And the winner is Chris Alleen, right? So he stepped in faith long before he knew where the money would come from. Those of you who are grad students know it's a very modest budget, right? Um, But when he stepped and trusted in faith, God provided a means, not only that he wasn't aware, he didn't even know it existed, he didn't even know it was a possibility. But God owns all the silver and gold, and he knows exactly how his children at the right time can be provided. So Jesus is asking this question. He knows what he's going to do. Um, I, I love the story too that before he does the miracle, he gives thanks for the miracle. This is, if you're ever sitting down, finding yourself saying, I just, I don't think I have the faith to pray today. I'm too discouraged. Learn from what Jesus did. Not that he didn't have faith, but he set a great example of you can begin by thanking God for the miracle before you have the miracle. You can just start saying, thank you, God. I thank you that my children are going to follow you and serve you all of their days. God, I thank you for the provision that's coming. I thank you that as one door closes, you're going to open another door that's going to be even better. Just begin to thank the Lord. Just begin to thank God. And so Jesus set us a great example, right? He didn't wait until everyone was fed and say, thanks, God. That was, 
That was great that that worked out. His starting point was, we're going to thank God for the miracle that's about to happen. And then, out of that, he did the miracle. What's interesting about this, and and contrasted, because John goes on to um, tell how when people follow Jesus later in in this very story, and he says, candidly, guys, you're not really following me because you're following me. You're following me because you ate the loaves and had your fill. And you're thinking to yourselves, it'd be good to follow a guy who always gives us food whenever we need it. Um, and then they, they talk about him in relation to Moses. And they say, Moses gave us manna from heaven. Um, so Jesus corrects them in at least one way. One of which is, it was actually God who gave you the manna from heaven. But it's a great comparison because it shows that, you remember the manna, it only lasted a day then it went bad. It was just enough to get you through the day, right? The miracle that Jesus brought was more than enough. You realize what he ushered in in the new covenant was a more than enough miracle. They actually had enough to feed everybody, and then there were 12 baskets left over uh, for them to you know, have leftovers for the next day or the next season. Because God in his goodness was showing through Jesus, I'm turning the page. Manna, you ate it, It rotted at the end of the day. You had to go out the next day and get more. In this case, Jesus says, I'm bringing more than enough. So really, what ushered this miracle in? What ushered this miracle in was lunch money, right? It was a little boy saying, here, I offer this. Here's what I have, and I'm bringing it to you, not even knowing what, what Jesus would do. It's just saying, It may not be much, but I'm just going to put this in the hand of God and see what happens and see what he does. I was supposed to eat it, but I'm going to give it to God and I'm going to see what happens, right? And I, I think back on this story a lot and I ask myself the question, was this boy the first person that felt a tug in his spirit to hand in his food? Was he the first? Was he the fifth? Was he the tenth? Were there other people who got the tug beforehand who were like, no, that's crazy. I'm not, I'm not giving my food to all these people. What good would it do, right? But maybe it took a little child not to rationalize away why the miracle shouldn't happen. Maybe it took a little child to say, as Jesus would say, this is how you want to enter the kingdom of God, like these little children. Because a little ch- child was not so tempted by endless rationalization and excuses. He could just come to God and say, I know it's not much, but I put this in your hand and I look forward to seeing what you're going to do. But it was everything he had, as far as we know. It was his sacrifice. Um, Andrew didn't say, there's a little boy here, he's got um, this huge cooler full of food and he's giving us 10%. In this case, it was he gave his all, right? And so I think this little boy may not have been the first Scripture doesn't say, so we don't know. But he was definitely the first to come to Jesus and say, here are my possessions, and I hold back nothing, right? So what does that mean? That means we have an attitude in our hearts, not that we are owners, because we're not. Scripture makes it very clear. I don't own anything. You don't own anything. Our possessions don't belong to us. Our children don't belong to us. We are stewards who, for a season have possessions that belong to the owner. And to the owner, we will one day give an account of how we use them. So we're not owners, we're stewards, 
And with that stewardship, our attitude needs to be to the owner, what would you have me do with these possessions? I'm going to keep back nothing in my heart. Now, how do you want me to obey? Where do you want me to give? What do you want me to do? Okay? That's the first thing I believe the Holy Spirit wants all of us to, um, to face and look at. And, and I start with that because, I mean, it's interesting. Uh, money is a clear signal of what's going on in the heart, isn't it? Um, and it's also something that stewardship in that unlocks many other things, right? In the epistles we read, if you haven't been, or, or sorry, in the, um, in the gospels we read, if, if you haven't been faithful with, you know, this, this money, who's going to entrust you with true riches, right? Spiritual riches. If you, if you haven't even shown yourself faithful with this unrighteous mammon, um, Luke 17, I believe, or 15, um, <clears throat> as Jesus said. And so those possessions, they're a key to what God wants to do, how he wants to unlock his power in our lives and entrust us with true spiritual riches. But he begins with a stewardship of our possessions, this unrighteous mammon. So we've talked about possessions. I want to talk now about prayer. What does God want us to do in the spirit of in Lewis's parlance, keep back nothing. What does it mean to keep back nothing in prayer? Let's look at Matthew 26, 36 to 46. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. And he said to them, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass for me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time, he went away and prayed, saying, Oh, my father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. Then he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them, went away again, and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Now, uh, last month, I was actually um, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, with my wife and a group. And does anyone know what Gethsemane means? It's an olive press. And we saw the equipment, the crushing stones and the grinding stones that they use to grind all of the oil, to press it all out. And so it's, it's very fitting that this is where Jesus went as he was going to be, as everything was going to be squeezed out of him, all of that virtue the richness, the oil that flows down from God. He comes to the Garden of Gethsemane, the olive press, so that he may pray before his suffering. And he, in, in many ways, he picked his boldest three, right? He said to a lot of people, okay, you guys can hang out here. He picked Peter, known for his brash pronouncements and actions. And he picked James and John, whom he nicknamed Sons of Thunder, right? Sons of Thunder is not a nickname you give to the, to the, to the quiet person who sits in the corner. Um, and so he brought them and he said, 
Keep watch with me. Pray with me. There's a miracle about to happen, and I need you to be there with me, bearing the weight of this miracle in prayer. I need you to be there bearing up with me, enduring with me, persevering with me, pushing through with me in prayer for what I'm about to suffer. Think of it, Jesus, he threw himself on the ground and he cried out. His, his, his being was under such physical stress that blood seeped through the pores of his skin. That is the stress that he was under. He prayed out with complete love and trust in his father. He prayed with complete submission to his father. It was the most stressful night of his life and his best friends were fast asleep. In the midst of the stress, before it came, he knew it was coming, and so he said, who's going to bear the weight with me? Who's going to bear the weight of this miracle in prayer? His words, they really, they really echo the words of the prophets that we've heard through the ages. You remember in Ezekiel, he, he says, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I, I looked for a man who would make a wall and stand in the gap for me on behalf of the land. I was just looking for someone who would stand up and pray and resist the forces of evil. Isaiah, I looked and there was no one to help. I wondered that there was no one to help. Therefore, my own arm brought salvation for me. So this, this cry and this call, it echoes through the centuries. Who's going to bear the weight in prayer? for the miracle that God wants to do in this city. Who's going to wrestle in prayer? Paul said to the Colossians, I've got to tell you about my friend Epaphras. He is, I don't just come to him and say, you know, the saints in Colossae could use your prayer and he prays a 10 second prayer and moves on. Uh, scripture says about Epaphras, he's always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand perfect and fully assured in all the word of God, in all the, sorry, in all the will of God. Now, that word we render as wrestling in English, the Greek word is agonizomai. That's where we get the word agonize. Agonize. Epaphras, Paul said, he's agonizing in prayer for you, that you might stand mature, that you might stand complete in all the will of God. And so that's the, the second calling. In some ways, it's, it's easier to kind of write a check and forget about something. But the call to prayer is the call to agonize, the call to wrestle, the call to fight the good fight of faith on our knees with the armor of God around us, with the sword of the Spirit in our hand to cut through. To, you can see it when you're praying for an individual or when you're praying for a community. You can see there's deception, there's bondage, and the word of God can cut through all of that deception, all of those lies, and bring the freedom, the glorious freedom of the children of God. So the second call that I believe the Holy Spirit has for each of us, the first call is, am I going to look at all my possessions and say, I'm going to keep back nothing, I'm not an owner, I'm merely a steward, and a steward manages money and from time to time, and eventually, finally, has to give a complete account for how he or she managed that money. Um, the second one is in prayer. Am I going to hold back nothing in prayer? I don't want to be a 
10 second prayed and forgot about it for the city of Chicago. I want to be wrestling in prayer. I want to be wrestling in prayer for you guys that you stand firm, that you're mature and complete, that you're growing in the grace of God. Thirdly, um, let's talk about priorities. And I'm not sure, I, I sent a video, but it was kind of late. Do we have that video? We have it. Um, can we watch that now? Sir, when I landed on D-Day, I found myself in a ditch all by myself. I fell asleep. I think it was those air sickness pills they gave us. When I woke up, I didn't really try to find my unit to fight. Just, I just kind of stayed put. What's your name, Trooper? Blasher, Albert Bly. You know why you hid in that ditch, Blythe? I was scared. We're all scared. You're in that ditch because you think there's still hope. But Blythe, the only hope you have is to accept the fact that you're already dead. And the sooner you accept that, the sooner you'll be able to function as a soldier's supposed to function. All war depends upon it. I love the scene from the, uh, the miniseries Band of Brothers. What's really happening there is you have a private who's very fearful. He's given in to his fears. He landed on D-Day, and he just kind of hid in a ditch and tried to preserve himself. And uh, Lieutenant Spears is telling him, the problem is you think that you still have a life. You need to start by knowing you're already dead, and that will actually liberate you to fight the way you're supposed to fight, Right? And so a Christian is the same. If you haven't yet received the liberation of the knowledge that I took up my cross and I'm following Jesus, right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. That's what it means to take up your cross, right? And so in this story, the, the, the evidence is, or the, um, the, the message is clear to this private. Until you realize that you're already dead, You'll never be free. You'll never walk like a good soldier the way you're supposed to walk like a good soldier. And that's why Jesus frequently used the parlance of, he told his disciples on at least three occasions, I'm going to go die on the cross. And consistent with that, he also told them, if you want to follow me, I have the same invitation. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Let's read a few um, verses from Luke. Luke Luke uh, talks a lot about the cost of being a disciple. Luke nine fifty seven to 62. Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. 
He said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but first let me go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one, having put his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. And then Luke 14, great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and doesn't hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You see, in Band of Brothers, Albert Blythe had many other priorities that were conflicting with his number one priority, right? And Lieutenant Spears had to tell him, you're not going to function the way a soldier is supposed to function until you have the right mindset and attitude, right? What's, what's amazing to me, I, I continually marvel at, at kind of the laser-like precision of Jesus. What's so interesting about this story in Luke 9 is that the first guy comes to Jesus and says, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, think it over. Let me tell you the cost. You're not really thinking about the cost. Let me explain what my life is like. Foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests. I don't have anywhere to lay my head, right? So in his case, he says, you've got to count the cost. You've got to think about it before you follow me. The second guy, he says, follow me. The guy makes excuses and he says, no, 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 follow me right now, right now. And so that's the precision of Jesus, right? Who knows um, why, the, um, why he said what he said to each, but he had infinite wisdom and infinite knowledge of their situation to say the right thing. Perhaps the first one was in a case where it's like, if he didn't think it over, he would have come and at the first sign of difficulty, he would have left. But if he did think it over and say, no, I choose to follow you, he wouldn't have been rocked when trouble came. How about the second one? Perhaps Jesus knew if he goes home, he's never coming back. He's going to get tied down with the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, the desires for other things. They w- he'll never be my disciple unless he says right now, I'm willing to relinquish all that. Okay? My kids, when they came upon this passage, they said, you're supposed to hate mommy and you're supposed to hate us. We don't understand. And that's quite natural um, for children. You have to understand in the, um, in the parlance of the day, whereas now, love and hate, in English, they're absolutes. I love this. I hate that. Um, there, it was more of a, there are relative degrees. And you can say, I love these two things, but when you compare, it looks like I hate the second one because I love the first so much. The first I'm going to choose. And Jesus has made it quite clear. The time will come when you have to choose. He said, you can't serve God and money, right? You're going to love one, hate the other. You're going to be devoted to the one, despise the other. It's just not going to work, right? You have to choose. Um, and, and so in the same way, Jesus is saying, there can't be anything that you would put ahead of me, right? It can't be that you would put your family ahead of me. It can't be that you would put material comfort ahead of me. It can't be that you would put ahead of me where you want to live, where you want to work, where you want to study. All of those things need to be subjugated to Jesus is my Lord. And so think about the language of, of the second and third man 
They both said, sure, I'll follow you, but, but first, I got to do this. First, I have these other priorities, other things. Um, never forget the story of Elijah. When he comes to the widow, the widow's gathering sticks to make one last meal and then feed it to her and her son and then die, right? I mean, Scripture talks again and again, and we all know the maternal bond is one of the strongest bonds. So Elijah comes to her and says, before you feed your son, you feed me. Um, He's standing as a representative of God in the time. He said, give me first, right? And when you do that, you'll never run out through the rest of the famine. And so for her, it was a choice, right? She looked at it and she said, this doesn't make sense to my rational mind. I should use this last meal to feed myself and my son. But she obeyed the word of Elijah the prophet. And what happened? The food never ran out. The rest of the famine, there was a widow in town who never ran out of food while everyone else was scrimping, saving, trying to hold on. She said my first priority is going to be doing what the prophet of God tells me to do and calls me to do. What's so remarkable about that story is um, Elijah... He didn't go to the religious people whom you thought would have obeyed. He went to a widow in Zarephath. He went there instead. And he found someone whose heart was in the right place, who was going to put God first. Know this, Scripture never says, seek second the kingdom of God. It says, put the kingdom of God first. It doesn't say, okay, 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 pick your favorite thing, and then after that, follow me. No. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Everything you actually need, God will provide. Everything you actually need, God will provide. And he'll give you what's more important, contentment. There are people with 10 or 100 times the wealth who didn't have the contentment of the Apostle Paul in his day. Or of Christians who choose to be content with what we have. And so Jesus said it like that. And and having just told them, Your father, he knows how to feed the birds of the air. He knows how to clothe the lilies of the field. If you put his kingdom first, he will supply everything you need. All right, so we've talked about possessions. We've talked about prayers. We've talked about priorities. Um, I want to read one quote, and then we'll move on to talk about purpose. So listen to this quote from uh, Barbara Boyd. Barbara Boyd said this, If the distance between the earth and the sun which is 93 million miles, were the thickness of a piece of paper, the diameter of our galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. And our galaxy is less than a speck of dust in the part of the universe that we can see. And that part of the universe might just be a speck of dust compared to all the universe. If Jesus, the Son of God, holds all this together with the word of his power, Is this the kind of being you ask into your life to be your personal assistant? Think of it. He's holding the entire universe together with the word of his power. And the distance from the earth to the sun is a single paper in a stack 10 miles high and then uh, 310 miles high and our galaxy is a tiny speck of dust in the known universe. So we don't come to Jesus and we say, bless my priorities Bless the things that I'm already planning to do. We come to him and say, you are my Lord, direct my steps. I'm going to hold back nothing. Finally, purpose. The the overarching purpose of our lives. 
We're going to go to some of the last words Jesus spoke. Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So we have received the highest purpose that anyone could possibly receive. The creator and sustainer of the universe has said, this is my plan, this is my purpose, and I'm entrusting it to each of you. This was the plan, by the way, from the beginning. What God told Adam and Eve, what did he say? Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, right? Same thing. Go into all the world, make disciples. And when you make disciples, you change, you build churches, you change communities, you change societies, and society changes and it becomes more like the redeemed society that Jesus wants to have. And when you do that, um, we're fulfilling the very first command that God gave to Adam and Eve with respect to their responsibility to multiply and to rule. Paul said it like this about his own personal calling. I'm not sure we have it up there. Um, Acts 20, 24. He said, I'm going up to Jerusalem. The Holy Spirit's told me that prison and hardship face me. He said, Acts 20, 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. If only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. So Paul had a very specific calling to do that on an itinerant basis, but every single Christian, we all have the duty to testify to the gospel of God's grace, to advance the kingdom of God here and in every single corner of the earth. That is the duty that Jesus gave to his disciples as he was leaving the earth and ascending to heaven. And that is the duty that each one of us has. And this is what it's going to take. It's going to take us keeping back nothing, right? So I want to I ask each of you to reflect on these four questions. Then we're going to take a few minutes and I just want you to reflect quietly and then I'm going to pray. First, respect to possessions. Am I willing to consider my possessions not as an ownership, but as a stewardship and to act that way? Secondly, am I going to keep watch the way Jesus called all of us, wrestling in prayer to see his good purposes accomplished in my life, the life of my church, the life of this city, the life of my family. Is Jesus going to be my unmistakably first and highest priority in everything I do? And then fourthly, am I going to organize my life around that purpose, the purpose of advancing the gospel of God's grace.
all around, where I study, where I work, in my family, in my apartment building, in the city, everywhere on earth. I'm just going to ask you to close your eyes and just reflect on those, those thoughts. And just let the Holy Spirit speak to you. Holy Spirit, come. I ask you, you, you know individually, you know every single heart in this room. And you know with great precision. That's why you didn't tell everyone the same thing. To one man you said, you better count the cost and you better understand the conditions in which I live. To another man you said, don't go back to your family, follow me right now. Jesus, you understand the heart of every single person. And so I'm praying, I'm asking you by faith that to each of our hearts you would speak and you would reveal to us that you would put your finger on areas and you would say, with respect to possessions, with respect to prayer, with respect to our priorities, with respect to our, our purpose for living, what are you showing us? Please speak to every person here. Thank you, Jesus. Come, Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts.